Hello, my friends. I'm so excited for this 100th episode. Thank you so much for listening. We do this show for you to help spread all the great advice in the technology leadership community so that you can lead your teams, advance your careers, and become more valuable. If you've ever gotten any value out of this podcast, please share with a friend. Spread the word, tweet at me, add me on LinkedIn, and just say hello. Every time you do this, it makes my day and gets our team over here really pumped up. We believe that leadership is all about taking action with your team, not doing trust falls in a workshop. So if you're tired of long, boring leadership training from the 1940s, try something new and modern. Become more valuable as a leader at leaderbits.io. Now, get excited because today we are talking to Jason Warner, the SVP of technology at GitHub, and we discuss the different flavors of mergers and acquisitions, stepping out of your comfort zone in order to grow, and why it's so important to take ownership over the things you can control. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Jason? Yeah, it's a nice day up here. So, you know, um, how are you? Where, where are you all calling from, by the way? I know where Jacqueline is, but I don't know where you are. You guys are. Uh, we're in Florida. Oh, all right. Mm-hmm. Like uh, Tampa area, a little bit south of Tampa in a town called Sarasota. Okay. I know where Sarasota is. So is it getting a uh, springtime over there? I'm assuming so. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's spring break crazy. It just ended. So like the beaches were flooded with people. It was just chaos. Very nice. But in a good way. And then where are you calling in from? I'm in Bellevue. Bellevue. Nice. Bellevue, Washington. How is it out there? Raining? Uh, it's not raining right now. You can see the back window behind me. It's uh, it's full on spring. Uh, as a matter of fact, like my weather app told me that this week is going to be, it's going to start to rain towards the end of the week, but it's going to be in like the 70s, I think at one point this week. And so are you leaving Bellevue? Are you like, I'm done with the rain or are you just moving places? No, I moved to Bellevue. I was in Victoria, British Columbia for five years. Okay. So I moved to Bellevue from there after the acquisition was announced. Nice. So I was checking out your medium. And the first question I had was where did, where did you get all that artwork? All that. So there's just, I, I randomly, I like urban sketching. That's my, one of my things like to, 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 you know, um, relax. I do a couple of different things. One of them's right. One of them's lift weights. The other one is to draw. And I got into sketching and watercolors a while back and urban sketching kind of took to it because frankly, it looked like there was an easy way to get into it. You didn't need a lot of talent. You throw some lines together, slap some some uh, color down on it and it looks pretty good. But you get, start to do it, you realize these folks are really ridiculously talented. And I started following some folks on Instagram or uh, various mediums in this this one person, I, I don't know who this person is, but they're out of China. They just go all over China and they do this one style and I just love it. So I just follow this person. I grab some of their um, free domain artwork when it pops up and I just use it for blog posts. It's beautiful. It's amazing, isn't it? It's just, yeah. it, it, you look at that and you're like, okay, yeah, that's how you know life's not fair sometimes. Someone's got that much talent and also they, they just, de- their dedication to it is other, otherworldly. Yeah, I, I saw like the first one and then I saw the second one. And I'm like, is he drawing these? Like who is doing this? Oh, no, 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 no. I used to play around with this app called paper, like paper 53. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. Yeah. You could do some pretty cool watercolor type stuff in that app. 
there's this person on Instagram who I used to follow too, until I like completely deleted all social media at one point, which um, this person's name was like Master Vi or Master Master V or Master Six. I'm not sure how you, you, you pronounce it, but they use micro pens, kind of like the uh, Micron 0.05 millimeter type things. And they would just constantly draw architecture. And what this person did was they just posted every single one that they did over a five-year period. And you could see the progression going back on their Instagram from when they just started to what they had become. And if you just found them now, you think this person is just godly talented, but you see where they start from, you can see the progression. It's kind of fascinating. That like draws parallels to me with leadership because I was reading your leadership stuff and I happen to, to really like your style but you could watch the leaders grow and it's amazing where they, where they go. Well, if you do it every day too, as you're, you're, you're managing people or leading, um, I made this comment a while back at a, a recurring event that I had gone to for many years, which said that, you know, today I'm no different than I was five years ago. And then someone came up to me afterwards and said, no, 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 you're very different than you were five years ago in a positive way. Like we could definitely see the progression if someone's only seen you in snapshots over the course of like once a year or twice a year or something like that. But you don't feel it every day. It's kind of interesting how the way that works. Yeah, it's leveraging the compounding nature of time. It's it's like a super power to people who understand it. Which is also why uh, just start socking money away when you're young too. <laughs> I I can't believe I'm in the 40s already. Like I I look back and I'm like yeah, 1999 was just the other day. I'm like oh my god, some people were born in 99. I know. I can remember where I was in 99, like, because everybody was uh, at the uh, New Year's Eve party was like wondering if the world was going to end. <laughs> yep. Yep. And there's a few towns that like their electricity companies went out and stuff. Those people must have been freaked out, like the three or four small towns. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, it, if, if there was an April Fool's Day joke to be played, it would have been right around that time. Right. So are you usually at home working from home or is this just because of the move? Um, I'm, I'm, let's call it 50-50 uh, okay. here at HQ in San Francisco. Um, I've been a distributed remote exec now going on 10 years at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, GitHub is probably 60 plus, 65% plus distributed. Um, Heroku was distributed. Canonical, the place before Heroku, was also distributed. So I've been doing this for, for quite some time. Wait, so Canonical was what Heroku was before it was Heroku? Uh, Canonical are the people who make Ubuntu Linux. Oh, okay. I was at Canonical for four and a half or five years, Heroku for three and a half or so years, and then GitHub. And all three of the places are distributed. Canonical is 100% remote. Um, Heroku was probably about the 65% remote, um, 70 or so in engineering. And then GitHub, same percentages as Heroku, 65, 60, 65% for the company, 70 plus in engineering. And they just got, uh, how long ago did they get acquired by Salesforce? Heroku? Yeah. Um, 2012. So it's been a little while, actually. Um, I think it was 2012 that they got acquired. I joined them in, in 2014. You know, what's funny is I didn't even, I've been on Heroku since for a long time. <laughs> um, but I didn't, I didn't even realize they got acquired for quite a while. Like it was several years before I, before I noticed. I don't know if that was intentional or unintentional. Well, but- a lot of the branding stayed the same for quite some time. Yeah, and then they didn't change it too much. It just has this little Salesforce logo at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah, but I had uh, spoke to Parker last week. He's one of the co-founders of uh, yeah. Salesforce. Nice. Yeah, Parker um, 
Parker Harris, he, uh, I, I only interacted with him maybe a couple of times at uh, Salesforce, but um, one of the more genuine people in the industry, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like he's, you know, the guy's otherworldly wealthy at this point, uh, and you still don't feel it when you talk to him day in, day out. So um, kind of appreciate that when you're around people who let things get to their head in the industry. Right. It was cool. We were talking about his meeting that he had like 20 minutes before our call with his lead architects and stuff. <laughs> like, dude, you're still killing it. You're just, you know, it's like, it's amazing. Uh, that makes me happy. There is um, one story about Parker that I'll, I'll uh, tell that I, it, I like, which is, I don't think he would ever even remember this, but we were all flying to a leadership offsite for Salesforce somewhere. I think it was Palm Springs from um, uh, San Francisco. Everyone was kind of coming into Palm Springs. And I saw him, he was on my flight. He was in, uh, I think he was in like row seven or something like that. So not first class, not flying private, not charter. He was in economy. And uh, I remember getting on the planes, looking at him, going, that's Parker Harris. And he's in economy with everybody else. And then there were some other people at Salesforce at the time who were in first class. Some people who chartered private to get to Palm Springs from San Francisco, which is, you know, what is it? An hour and a half, an hour or something like that. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, no matter what happens in life, be Parker. Don't be those other folks. <laughs> oh, I love it, dude. I love it. It's like, cause you want to be that genuine, authentic person. You don't want to, you don't want to change too much, you know? Yep. I love that painting behind you. That, that, is that painting a print, the artwork of the little GitHub characters, different colors? It is. This is a sticker we have at the office. And, um, we, I got this as a closing gift from, uh, for the acquisition. So uh, several of us on the exec staff and some of the VCs got this one. One of the, um, the investors, this guy named Jim Getz out of Sequoia just commented randomly because we had a very large print of this in the office and we're walking through. He said, I love that one, it's my favorite one. And I just made the same comment, I love it too. And um, next thing you know, my admin had sent one to all of us. She just got a bunch of prints done and she sent it up and I got it like three or four weeks later and I just randomly asked him, like, hey, sister, you know how that I got this? She's like, oh, I got, I took care of that. I heard you and Jim talking, and I thought that'd be a really nice little gift for you all. And it's literally, like, one of my favorite things to get out of the acquisition. Yeah, because it's beautiful. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Have, have things changed much for you since then? Um, to a degree. Uh, day-to-day work feels a little similar, uh, feels similar to what it was before. Um the Microsoft has taken a pretty hands-off approach to GitHub or an independent entity. Um, much like you probably wouldn't have known that Heroku was acquired by Salesforce, as you mentioned, you probably shouldn't be able to tell that GitHub was acquired by Microsoft day in, day out. Uh, our roadmap is largely the same as it was before. The biggest difference day to day for me is Nat Friedman has come in. He's my, my boss now. He's the CEO mm-hmm. and he's an engaged CEO, which is different than GitHub's previous regime. And he is really um, amplifying a lot of what GitHub had been and will be. So that's the biggest change day to day there. Um, my life, my, my personal life has changed because once you do something of this magnitude and your name starts to get out there, people approach you for many, many different things. So again, kind of like B. Parker, um, I've got to keep remembering that all this stuff is, all, whatever fame or, or flattery you get is all ephemeral no matter what. You have to kind of remember where you grew up or who you are and what you want to be um, and kind of like let the noise wash away. Yeah, like people inviting you on their podcasts and stuff. Crazy people this, out there. This is the fun stuff. There's some, I mean, you get random 
out of left field type of things every day now. And the, the, the fun part is you get flattering job offers, like amazingly big opportunities. And, you know, a lot of folks trying to, to get you to replicate the success in one way or uh, yeah. fashion or form. But then you got people trying to come at you for money or you invest this way or all the things. And then, then you just have like random requests that popping out of the woodwork from either old acquaintances, old friends, or even some old family <laughs> stuff. And it's just, it's interesting. It's like you won the lottery. <laughs> it really, it really feels that way. And I'm like, I don't think y'all understand how acquisitions really work. So <laughs> it's like Jason, buddy, pal, friend. Yeah. <laughs> are like my, one of my favorite ones. I want you to come work for our company. It's going to be great. You'll do pure equity, right? And you're going to make millions of dollars. <laughs> It's, we're going to do awesome things. <laughs> I yeah, love that. Basically writing or drawing for publicity. You're like, cool. No, thanks. So, so you go to GitHub and then that's like 2017, right? When you get there? Uh, yeah. May 31st, 2017 is when I joined. So when you join, they were already, that's like right before the acquisition started. If, if an acquisition closed like recently, then they usually don't happen fast. So you must've, did you come like right into it? Um, so there's only a, so much I can talk. About. Oh, we cannot talk about this, by the way. We don't have to. There's, uh, well, I can say this is that um, everyone in the industry probably knew what GitHub should be, what it could be. Um, very few people were able to come into GitHub and try to move it to what it could do, though. My job was pretty simple. I joined when it was about a $2 billion valuation. Mine was to get it ready to be acquired or IPO. Um, either one of those options had to be on the table. And um, organize it, drive it, give it a mission and vision that sounded uh, palatable to suitors or the market. And once you show that you can be acquired and you have a palatable vision out there and there's a, uh, a degree of FOMO that you've created, things happen fast. Yeah. So we announced the acquisition on my one year anniversary to the, to the public. We announced it uh, on my one year anniversary. And, um, I would say that end to end from um, interest to announce was less than six months and then a total of like nine months to close the deal. So it did, did happen fast. Yeah, that is actually really fast. That's, that's cool though. So I guess what I, where my root of my question was, was like when you got in, you were like instantly working in that. Cause if you're, you're a senior executive at a company being acquired, so it's like you, you, you don't have an opportunity like to not be a part of that. Right. Like, so I just was curious if you... Yeah, I would say that the time I joined in May, May 31st, I would say that um, I was able to get Microsoft, Google, and others on the line probably closer to October, November. But that's when all the conversations probably happened earlier, as early as they probably did. Oh, that's very cool. So just out of, uh, for for you and me, right, and, and the audience, people often will ask us questions like, um, can you give us a, some advice on M&A or can you talk to people who've done that? Uh, and it doesn't have to be, we're not going to do like specific stuff with like GitHub or anything like that. Just in general, like, um, you know, things to look for, uh, what would make, I'll give you a hypothetical. If I have a company like, and I was looking to get acquired, what would make me valuable? What would you look for? Oh, I mean, it- very, very general question, and it's obviously yeah. going to lead to a whole bunch of it depends answers. <laughs> um, however, I think that you people can get acquired for a couple of different reasons. Let me give you a broad view sense that I have for what product really is in the world. Um, and uh, I think I stole this. Um, I know I stole this from someone, and I, I think it was Jeffrey Moore who I stole this from, which was a uh, product comes in three different flavors. You can say you're neutralizing competition, 
you're optimizing what you have in the market or you're kind of innovating. And you know where you are on your growth curve kind of depends on how much investment you're making in any one of those areas for your business. But M&A actually comes in the same flavors. You're trying to buy your way out of you know, competitive situations and gaps, or you're trying to buy innovation because you've lagged, or you're trying to buy some optimization. And you, typically you don't buy optimization. That's not what you would spend money on. So it usually comes into the other two buckets, neutralization or uh, innovation. And um, understand which one of those scenarios you're in, if you're talking to potential acquirers or you're, or you're looking at M&A, is why are we doing this M&A or what are they trying to get out of this? Are they thinking they're getting you know, a market leap to leapfrog competition or are they trying to get a catch-up play? And you know, it depends on who's acquiring you on which one of those modes it's in. And if you look around, many people think they're buying innovation, but what they're really doing is they're buying gap. They're, they're trying to shore up holes in their business that's a competitive gap. Um, and that's pretty much, uh, you know, uh, neutralization is a pretty common M&A strategy. I like that. I like that a lot. You know, because like we have a startup here and like alongside of the podcast. And I actually, I didn't know what I was doing when I got into the business. It just kind of happened. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, whatever. I was like, I had people asking, knocking on the door, asking for lemonades. So I was like, let's open up a lemonade stand. Right. And then I realized, oh my God, this is like an $18 billion market. There's like this whole thing. And then I started, you know, it grew, it did whatever. And then I decided to raise capital to grow it even farther. Cause I was like, it's growing. Look at that. That's pretty great. And then people were asking me questions like how, what's your exit strategy. Right. And how, so I had to do some market research. And then I started learning that you've got like all these older companies and what will happen is some new technology will come out and then like another, and then, and then a competitor to that new technology will come out and they're playing in like the 15, $30 million range. And then mm -hmm. a third one comes out. And then they're like, oh my gosh, they're going to steal our market share. So then big guy number one buys this one. Big guy, and then what happens is you get this uh, tension in the market where there's a supply and demand issue. There's only so many new innovative competitive companies and the big people are buying them up fast. And so I, when I was researching my industry, I saw that that was actually happening. I was like, I, this is perfect timing because in like two years, there's like eight or nine of these guys that need to stay relevant. The two biggest leaders have already made acquisitions for the company that I am, like that style of business. And there's no one else. So I'm going to, it's going to be like me with like eight bidders. And I was like, that's a, that's at least right now. And so I was like, that's actually pretty cool. And that's my first entry into like M&A. Well, I think that you're, you kind of nailed it on the head. It's like, you, you see this happen. What happens I mean, the entire, all of us are, are humans. We're all kind of uh, driven by the same type of dynamics at play. And I, I think if you just understand the human dynamic at play is uh, wins and losses, fear of missing out, competitive situations, and all those other things really do come into play. And, you know, one company buys another company. Next thing you know, three competitors are saying, what just happened? And they're trying to react and they're reacting quicker. And obviously, the faster you make decisions with less information, the worse that decision might be, too. And all of a sudden, this froth happens in the market. It's just it's a weird frenzy that can actually happen when a competitive situation emerges. Yeah, and it, and it ends up awesome sometimes for, <laughs> for, for parties involved. So let's, let's change the topic a little bit. I'm curious, um, because you uh, are remote some of the time, I'm curious to how you grow and develop like your next generation of leaders, like technology leaders. Like I, I saw you write a lot and you're very smart about culture and leadership. Um, but how do you sort of, how do you do that on like a tactical level? So it's, um, 
the the one skill I find that you need to be remote more than anything is the willingness to pick up the phone, as I say, which is you've got to be able to jump on a hangout or a Zoom or a phone call a bit way back when to, to be able to do it. And video has changed the game entirely for remote. Like when you were just doing audio conferences, it was much, much, much harder. And I don't think it was nearly as successful. And no matter what anyone says, um, IRC and Slack and all the other ones are not an acceptable alternative for video. And I find that if you're not willing to do that, uh, you want to stay async entirely uh, and just use text-based communication. It's very, very difficult to do that. You have to have mixed modes. So you've got to be able to write. You've got to be able to, to async um, write and consume. And you've got to be able to jump on video to do this, to hash things out. Um, if you're able to do that, I find that the, all of them kind of wrapped together allow you to have a pretty good experience. Um, every once in a while, I think you should get together in person, but I don't think it's necessary to be doing that every week or even every month. And you know, your mileage may vary, but your willingness to get on, get on a video call like this is key to doing it. So you mainly like coach your leaders through like one-on-ones when you're on video and communicating like one-on-ones we do, um, slacks back and forth just to do check-ins and the, you know, the first time you ever sense any sort of miscommunication on a, on a, even a back and forth of a text-based communication, you're like, good, got to jump on the phone. Let's go right now. Let's jump on the, the video hangout because it's the, the most important thing is to clear up, clear up small issues before they can big ones. And then also talk through scenarios. And if you're going to do the scenario stuff, talk through them live because nuance is very difficult in text. Um, yeah. Talk through them when you're, you can see the other person. Ask my wife. <laughs> right? Nuance is very difficult text. So you don't get to where you are without being able to understand this concept of stepping outside of your comfort zone, right? And so if, if we've got some, you know, a lot of our audience, uh, first time team leaders, all the way up to leaders of leaders, and then some CTO, but a whole lot of uh, first time tech leaders, what sort of advice would you you know, give or share or a story you would share about stepping outside of your comfort zone? Oh, wow. This, I could go on for days in a kind of uh, meandering, probably no, no real point at the end of it type of thing on this one. And I do like to talk about this stuff. Um, one good story, one good, uh, you know, stepping outside your comfort zone story that yields a positive result. <laughs> Oh, well, I would say for me, like obviously the um, the acquisitions one, it's not very often that you try to talk about stuff like that, um, stepping out of my comfort zone, but obviously the payout was huge. Um, I would say the first time I really jumped into management is kind of one of the first ones. Um, I'm, a I'm what you might call a reluctant leader. If, if I look back at my career, I jumped into management really, really young. I went back to IC, jumped again, went back, jumped, went back, kept doing it over and over again. And finally, there was a point in time when I just kind of like burned the boats on, on engineering leadership and just went all in on it. And I remember the time I did it was because I was in so incredibly frustrated with what was going on around me. Um, and it was one of those moments where I love the company. I love what we were doing, but it, everything was a mess. And it felt and like generally speaking, most things are on fire or, you know, there's some degree of emberness that is happening, smoldering, if you will, that is happening at all times. But this one felt particularly on fire. And I, you know, I stepped up and I, and I said, I wanted to go help. How can I help? And I went and I had a very uncomfortable conversation. This is the stepping out of the comfort zone part. I was young and I had a very uncomfortable conversation with the CTO at the time. And you could see that this person almost had this sense of relief because this person was like, 
God, I know everything's on fire and I have no idea what to do. What can we do? And you can see that there was like this guard let down moment where I was like, I don't know, you don't know either. So let's just talk about some of the things and prioritize top five that we should go after. And um, that was my first real jump into management uh, professionally without just kind of like dabbling at it, which led to executive um, management, you know, six, eight months later, and then the rest is history. I like that because what you're describing is you saw an issue and you looked around and you're like, hey, nothing's happening. And then you stepped up outside of your comfort zone and you made some changes and figured out how to solve the problem. Well, in that, the, in that one in particular, the uncomfortable conversation with the superior was the really step outside your comfort zone one. But there's a way in which you can do those. Uh, I, I like to say that every conversation is a chance for net improvement or um, decline in a relationship. And there's a way to have a conversation with a difficult conversation with someone where you, be, you become closer and stronger formed bonds outside of it, even if it's like you're not going to work at this company anymore. Or you can have that same conversation. And next thing you know, you've got you've got a villain for life that's coming after you. And I the skill is finding out how to have those conversations. And most people don't know how to have those conversations. And I think it's an actual skill to develop uh, difficult conversations. Is like a book for that or? Well, there's a book called The Crucial Conversations, which is a good one to read up on. Um, there's also, um, you know, candidly, um, my son is autistic. Uh, I have three children and my oldest is autistic and my second has um, many learning disabilities. And I've read a lot about a um, concept called social thinking, but also um, how to express yourself uh, for kids on the spectrum and how they communicate. And for some reason, for me, when I was reading a lot about communication patterns in autistic children, as well as social thinking theory, I was able to figure out that, that there, is, there is modes of communication that most of us don't employ, and we take short circuit shortcuts through most of our conversations. And if we don't take the, some of the, the harder portions of the conversations and, and, and develop those skills, we're actually doing all of ourselves a disservice. Um, and we're, we're trying to, to, to um, trade on social norms, if you will, and that only applies usually to, to very specific geolocales or maybe a nation or two. But I've, I've lived all over the world and there's many people in this country who don't or, or work you work with who are not born in your state or your county or your country. And the social norms are not the same. So sometimes you actually have to have a deeper ability and sophistication and communication than you normally would um, and one normally would. So yeah, I think you have to develop that. So you've lived in about three different countries? Yeah. Uh, United States, uh, Australia, and Canada, and then back to the U.S. Um, and then I've worked with people from all over the world, obviously. Oh, nice. Did you just do that because you were remote and you could, or were there offices there and you? My so life life happens sometimes. All the time. and um, and you know, uh, we were young. My wife and I, we had one kid at the time. Something happened in our life, and we said, "Hey, she, we want to make a change. Let's move to Australia." Yeah. So she looked for a job. She figured out what she could do there. I ended up at Canonical. Uh, it was either going to be a remote company or nothing for me. I was running engineering for a startup, but it was we were kind of blowing up the situation. And if I could find something remote and able to do it, I would. If I couldn't, then we, we were still going to do that. Um, and so that's how we ended up over in Australia. Stayed there for a couple of years, almost three. Then we found out about our son being autistic um, and we were like, hey, we got to get back to North America, but let's look up and down the West Coast for the best possible situation for us. Found Victoria, fell in love, went to go do that for five years. And then, you know, uh, 
again, life happens. And here we are in the United States after the acquisition was done. I love it. And you guys are happy where you're at? Yeah, we're pretty happy. Um, the kids love it. Uh, my wife likes being back in the States. Um, one thing that I think that uh, particularly Americans for either don't learn because we grew up here or for maybe forget if we traveled abroad is how easy things are in the U.S. and relatively how cheap things are. So there are obviously some things that are harder. Um, I personally prefer the Australian medical system to the U.S. medical system. It's got a mix of um, public and private. So there's like amazing social safety nets, but also the ability to jump outside of it and do private if you need to or want to. Yeah, it's it's actually quite quite a good system in my opinion. And uh, but you know, everything else is is a little bit harder there. And same thing in Canada, but like gas is cheaper, groceries are cheaper. As as ridiculously expensive as real estate is here in some cities, it tends to be cheaper here or at least relative to income levels. Amazon.com is a thing in the United States and it's not a thing in um, oh. the countries. Amazon.ca is, but assume that there's one 100 at the inventory on Amazon.ca as opposed to Amazon.com. And, you know, it's just these little tiny knock-on effects. So it's nice to be back. What, what age range are your kids? Um, 11, 8, and 5. 11, 8, and 5. Nice. I've got 18 months and one that's four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. oh my goodness yep you're in it yep uh you so you know what i'm what my life's like right now <laughs> yeah. and i'm laughing because i you've is that coffee you're drinking at what is it <laughs> seven o'clock at night or six o'clock at night on yours because you need it actually i would, I would imagine Yep. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I found, I used to think when I was young, I was like, how could the parent fall asleep on the couch? Like, how, how could you just fall asleep? It's like the middle of like, how could you do that? And then I thought I had a sleeping problem because I couldn't fall asleep on demand. I have two kids. You can fall asleep anywhere you want. <laughs> you can. Having kids is a remarkable perspective for the entire world. And yes. Uh, yes. So Let's talk about this. We had this little inside conversation at the office. I mean, it was a small debate, but I'm curious to get your perspective on it. We were discussing personal development, like professional development, like improving yourself and whether that's the responsibility of the individual or the company to improve the individual. So I find that um, this is actually quite an interesting conversation because I think it goes to, to mindset all around. Um, the individual as well as the, the corporate body. So here, here's what I say. Assume that no one is going to be responsible for you the way that you can be responsible for you. And assume that you have to take your responsibility into your hand. However, look for places that care for you the way that you would want to be cared for. And if I look at it that way, my job as an executive leader is to try to provide opportunities or things, uh, growth opportunities or uh, forms in which people can, can do those things. But I'm also looking for people who are going to own it themselves because one that shows a drive on their own and a, a more uh, assertive attitude or, or, or approach to their own care and cultivation. If that's how they're going to care for themselves, I, I likely transfers to other aspects of the job as well. And there's a statement I, I, um, I live by. And the longer I've been getting into my career, I like to look for people this way. I forget who said this one, but it said, you try to find people you need to rein in, not people you need to motivate. Ooh, yeah. And you know, I think my job is actually to motivate and inspire, but if I'm, that's, that's my job. Although if I'm looking for a trait in a person, I should be looking for a person who I don't need to do that for as much as I, uh, you might think you need to. 
And if you combine those two things, magic can happen because you find you know leadership that might care, but you also have people who are really you know self-driven. There's a lot of stuff that you can conquer in that approach. So to that question more directly, I think it's both parties. If I were to lean, it's going to be probably I'd say the individual should absolutely do it because there's very few people in life will care about them the way they care about themselves. Yeah, that's I loved your explanation. That's first of all, that was my side of it um, because individual ownership is like everything. And the re- the logic behind that for me is that if it's your fault, then you have the capacity to do something about it. But if it's outside of your control, you put yourself in a lost situation. Like you can't do anything about it because it's outside of your control. Well, there's very few things in life that you can control anyway, right? Right. So like most, most of life is like a random number generator, it feels like. However, you can take control over at least your education, your not your experiences even, because you might not get opportunities um, provided to you even if you apply for them, but you can learn and you could read and you could research. You can at least take control of information that flows into you and how you reflect on it. Yes. Yeah, and you can, you can, that's the beautiful thing about humans. Like a horse is a, is a horse. Like it can do horse things. Like we could, we can study, we can learn art. We can learn to draw those great drawings that you were talking about earlier. We can do anything that we want you know, with our brains, if we put the time into it and execute like the discipline to do so. I am um, I, another way to, to say this, some people ask me all the time about maybe a mentor or things like that in my life, um, getting to this point. And, um, I have had only one person at one point in my career who I think even like even cared for me as a, as a species called human, let alone as an individual person. Um, and I had, very short period of time with that person. It was less than two years. And I enjoyed every minute with it, particularly as time has gone on. But in a you know 20 plus year career, I've never had it except for that one opportunity. So if people if people are asking me how to find a mentor or any of those things, I say it's quite hard actually, because it's it's very difficult in our, our industry that people assume that someone else is going to provide them with opportunities. And I did that early on. I assumed the good work that I did was going to showcase or everyone else is going to just look at all the work and just throw opportunity my way. It's, it doesn't work that way typically. And it's an unfortunate it doesn't work that way, but it doesn't. And the reality of a situation is whether you use the word should or shouldn't, like I shouldn't have to do that or it should work that way. Should is a useless word. You have to actually figure out what the reality of the situation is and how to navigate and get through it. Now, if you're in a position to change the entire narrative of the, of, of the industry or the situation or whatever, that's different. Most people are not that, including myself. I don't control my own career at Microsoft. I have to, things have to fall my own way. People have to take a liking to me. There has to be a, the right political environment for me to achieve success past my current gig. Um, I don't control that. I'll tr- control the small few things I can and everything else is going to be luck. But that's the beauty of it because there are things you can control. <laughs> so I'm going to take ownership over those and I'm going to control them. Yeah, I like it. It's this. It's almost, it's like, it's almost amorphous. Like you can, you can sort of control certain objects in the environment, but you can't guarantee the exact outcome, but you can put everything in the right area and do what you can do. And then have a, have a healthy environment. And you're confident that if you have that healthy environment, a positive result will yield. Well, there's this, there's this comic I love about um, climate change, okay. which is uh, there's these two folks at a conference room full of, uh, it looks like other scientists and they're speaking to each other and they're talking about all these different initiatives that need to do to combat climate change. And I said, hey, what if we do all this stuff and we make the world a better place for nothing? And I think of that 
when I think about some of these things, because if you and I are working at the same place and, we're, and, and the inputs are generally the same, we're taking control of our careers the same way and our learnings and we're, we're progressing, we might, there's, the outcomes are not guaranteed to be the same. You and I might have different outcomes. You might end up as this TTO of the place and I might end up on a project that never had success for whatever reason. But that doesn't mean that the, it was worthless effort on either of our parts because you have to play it out over the time horizon of careers as well. And even if it, the outcome was not the same, it's not fair, generally isn't fair, but there's also going to be a moment in time where we are better than we were before. And that to me is like the, the, the broader goal. Yeah, and while you're saying that, it's reminding me, you know that that whole um, money one, if you'd rather have a penny and double it, or you'd rather have just a few Well, if you look at the math of that, and this was an interesting one for me because I, I did it the other day, you don't actually get the payoff greater until like the last two days. Like it's always a better option to take the money up front until those like very last moments. And so like that's, for me, that's when I see that, my perspective is that's motivating. Like I'm going to keep improving and keep doing that step. Even like what you said, some might end up as a CTO, some might end up as a failed project. I'll say there's some gold in that failure of that project. And now let me go at it again. And eventually over my career, it'll compound and I'll just get better at identifying opportunity, better at adjusting the environment and improving myself. And I've, I've yet to, to meet a person or read a book of someone that's tried really, really hard for a really long time and not have had a lot of success. Well, it's this classic, I think we all see them, which is when do people have success in their life? And obviously some people have immense success really early on and they're one hit wonder and never have another success after that. Um, but they can have huge monetary wins and they never have to um, worry about that again. And then you have others who achieve what you might think of their as their life's work in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And, you know, it's staggering for people in their 20s to think like, you know, you look around Silicon Valley and San Francisco and, you know, Lyft IPO yesterday and a bunch of other things that will be happening. And, you know, you have some mid to late 20s people thinking, oh, my God, I'm like failing at my career because I'm not X, Y, or Z because of who other else is around there. And it's, it's a skewed perspective. You just, sometimes, sometimes the, the situation dictates the outcome. Uh, you just have to prepare, find the opportunities, be prepared for when you're in that situation, take advantage of that point. Yeah, that's a good point because I had this transition in my life about, I don't know, five or seven years ago when I had some early success with my building applications. I made some really good money really early on. And then I didn't have that much success. And then I had a little bit, and then I did like, all right. And then like, but I didn't want to just do all right. Like I had, I had early success, so I didn't want to just do all right. And then I started thinking a lot and reading and, you know, finding experts and things like that, that have gone really far in their lives. And inevitably they're always writing about it when they're like in their sixties. Right. But I decided to make a mental change from investing in the exception based investment which is I'm going to build the next multi, you know, $100 million app, right? And I'm going to kill myself and I'm going to compromise my health and I'm going to do everything and write as much code as I possibly can. And I know if I do it, like I've got a shot at huge, huge money and being a household name. And I, then I realized, look, all these people say it took forever and you have to play this incredibly long game. So now instead of, you know, binging all night on coding and ignoring my health, I'm going to eat right, work out, invest in myself, figure out this professional development, learn how to communicate better, understand the business world better. And I'm going to play a 20 year game because that's what all the successful people do. And, and if you're doing the 80, 20 thing, I'm, if I'm, I'm investing, this is our life here. 
man. Jason, this is our entire lives. You get like one shot at a lifelong thing. And so I'm like, if I'm going to make this one investment, I'm not going to do exception-based thinking. That's playing the lottery. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the rule. And I'm going to invest and do the hard work over extremely long periods of time and know that if I fail on the rule, I will be proud of myself. I, um, I can appreciate that approach. I think that Silicon Valley teaches us to try to swing for the fences. And obviously, there's incentives at play. So if you're on your side of the fence and you're the investor on the other side of the fence, their incentive is actually to get you to play the exception-based game because that's how their game is played. But if you're on your side of the fence, play the rule-based game. That's your side of the fence. That, that is the, the, the higher chance of outcome, a successful outcome is that. Yeah, it's working. <laughs> it's, it took about five years before I first started seeing the signs of it working, but it was okay because I was healthier and like more fit and I felt better about myself. And it was just, I, I adjusted my expectations rather than being stressed about not hitting it all the time. I'm like, oh, I'm only a few years into like a 20 year plan. I'm good. Like, yeah. I think longer term plan is a, a healthier one. Um, mentally, physically, emotionally, family-wise. You have to also balance it, in my opinion, for what you want to do out of life. Some people actually want to play the exception-based game. And I, and, I, and I think the more power to them. And I, when I was younger, I thought I wanted to as well. Um, and I decided that I was going to do it one more time with GitHub. But, uh, you know, after that, I don't know. What are you most excited about today? Like, what's the thing that you're probably the move being over? <laughs> yeah, it'll be nice when the moves are over. Um, you know, the things that get me out of bed in the morning are still, um, I like what I do. I like what GitHub is building. People who see what GitHub has slowly released over the last couple of, uh, uh, let's say, a year and a half or so since I joined can probably put together what we're, we're slowly going to do over the next five years as well. And that, to me, is very interesting. I like developing the future, which is a little bit opaque to most people. Um, I quite like that. And um, I'm pretty excited about being able to do that uh, and continue to be able to do that. So I, I consider it a privilege. Yeah, I'm a big fan of GitHub, by the way. I've, I've been on there for 2009. Very early, yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's been great. And I mean, pretty much since the moment I had, since I, I don't know, since I started writing big boy technology and not just small fun projects, uh, it became, in working with teams, like I don't, I didn't, it took me so long to figure out that there was this thing, like another technology that did that because for me, Git was like the only thing, but there was other versions of it and stuff like that. But I was like, oh man, if I, <laughs> I wish I, I matured as an engineer. <laughs> like I wish I would have known about, you should have seen my face the day I figured out what tests were. I was, <laughs> I was like, this would have been so useful. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember the days when we were having like source, um, you know, uh, source safe or perforce or clear case discussions. And then I was at a startup company that was on CVS trying to make the case to move to subversion. I was like, oh my goodness, these are tedious conversations, branching and, and tagging conversations. And um, I remember when GitHub first came out, I looked at it and I was just like, oh my God, this is, this is going to change everything. Yes. Are you doing any public speaking in the near future? Um, I do uh, a lot of internal stuff at GitHub and Microsoft. I will be doing, uh, I don't think I have any public things coming up. I just got done with South by Southwest and um, I have a CTO summit in New York, I think in June. That's um, Peter Bell, right? Um, I, I, I'm not sure if it's that one or if it's a, a different one. There's two of them that are going on at the same oh, time. Oh, are there really? Yeah. Oh, nice. Let me know about like who organizes, do you know who organizes the other one? 
Uh, I think it's Benchmark Capital actually was doing Benchmark it. Capital? Yeah, I think that's my video who was doing it. Well, I'll, I'll find out later and send it to you. Yeah, I'll kind of geek out about that type of stuff. Yeah. yeah. I always <laughs> give the same type of talk. Um, so if you ever look up the, one of the old CTO summits in San Francisco from Peter Bell, I give the same type of talk, which is about building organizations that can scale um, and thrive over time. So it's all the same type of talk. Most people are, if I, I find that when they're building companies, they try to do things that worked for them in the past, not realizing that that's going to break at a scale that they're probably not anticipating at the moment. So I talk about how to do things and how to plan for future growth that way. Oh, that's pretty cool. And that obviously, I mean, it's like, if you gave that, you know, back in the day, right, or a few years ago, now when you're giving it, it's like a whole different, uh, you got all that added experience on top of it. Yeah, and the, the, my wife looks at it this way. She's always wanted me to, to write, to continue writing. That's what she likes um, that I do. And she just, she wants me to keep writing about that experience. Like all the, GitHub, if, if anything, GitHub is like a pressure test of a lot of those theories or thesis that you put into practice at smaller places or in different situations. Because GitHub is kind of like the, the pinnacle of those things. It was, you know, VC, um, largely VC funded. It was in an interesting spot in its history. A lot of um, positives and negatives and to get it out this way. It's a validation of a lot of the principles. When's the book coming? Oh, it'll have to, it's, it's, it'll have to come after I don't need to work or want to work anymore, I'll say. <laughs> That's good. Well, here's, I'll, I'll, uh, we've got this book coming out, um, working on it, and it's The Habits and Patterns of the Greatest Technology Leaders on the Planet. And essentially, it's just like, you know, Salesforce CTO, you're uh, Kevin Scott over at Microsoft CTO, like all these different um, technology leaders, uh, VPs of engineering, SVPs, CTOs. And I took like the best clips, like from all the, you know, 500 conversations I've had with them and I'm putting into a book and I'm organizing it by like, here's like the best bits on like culture and here's the best things on like hiring. And so uh, if you'd like, I'd include some of your content in that. And then now you yeah, need a book. You You've got the blog post. You can freely adapt any one of those, or we can talk about something else offline if you want. Yeah. No, I, I just think it'd be, I like, first of all, the coolest thing about all of this is a uh, quick backstory about me. Started programming at eight, been writing code for about 17 years, knew nobody, like four or five people until two years ago. And now I know like hundreds of people. And it's, it blows my mind because I, people are always like, why are you so excited? Why do you talk so much? I'm like, cause I didn't say anything for 17 years. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. So now that I get to, you know, hang out and, and talk with people like you about leadership and technology and all the cool things that they're doing, it's just, it's super exciting. So I, I just like to include people in projects that we're doing and, um, I get to travel around the world and speak. And like, I go to Colorado tomorrow morning. I was in, I was in San Francisco last week. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. So if I'm ever out in, in the Bellevue area, I will. Uh, Basically 50, 50 at this point. So. Oh, between SF and Bellevue. Yeah. Oh yeah. I ran the, uh, I ran the bridge. The, uh, oh yeah. Nice. It was scary, dude. Have you been on the bridge? Uh, I, I've been in the bridge of cars. I don't know if I would, if I would go on, on foot. You want to talk about, like I had the best Tony Robbins thing in my head. I was like, you do not look over that edge where you look is where you will go. I was like, I was like, I was like writing a leadership talk in my head because it is, it is scary. The, the rail is like, you know, waist high and there's people on their bikes coming and there's cars over here. And then you hear the water and then all you and the, wind, 
the wind can whip up a little bit too. Oh, dude. I remember I was standing, I don't remember where this was, um, but I was standing on a, a, a way up uh, in a building and it had one of those plexiglass or glass-based floors where you can look oh. down below you and it was just the street. And I'm just thinking, nope, that's, that's not for me. <laughs> so you all have fun with that. I'm just going to be over here hanging out by myself. I'm glad so, there's a personal growth wall there because that wall yeah. is going to keep me alive. <laughs> I don't need that's not for me you're all good I know what I'm about awesome Jason this has been fantastic man I'm so glad that we got a chance to hang out and talk well thanks Joel this has been fun yeah all right talk soon Jason all right see y'all see ya Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to help, please take a moment right now to open up the iTunes app and leave a review of the podcast. If you take a screenshot of the review and text it or email it to a friend who needs to listen to the podcast and then CC me, joel at moderncto.io. If you CC me on the email, I'll send you a copy of the Modern CTO book or give you a shout out on the podcast, whichever you prefer. We're trying to get listed on the top 100 for iTunes and I need your help in order to do this.